From face-to-face training to blended training techniques, the DOT Consulting delivers distinct advantage for organizations looking to grow. We help you invest in technology knowledge through training, experimental learning, and community connections. Employees create an overall collective sharpness, savviness, and greater productivity using technology as a tool, thus increasing the technological speed and quality of the expertise in your organization. The DOT Consulting, a new level of tech savvy. Visit the dot consulting dot co. Welcome to Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. This is an education-based show focusing on tech careers and how to incorporate the important aspects of technology in your current work. Each show brings you closer to tech success. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coding the Future an education-based show to give information and action tips to working adults to guide them to a new level of tech savvy. Through leveraging their own skill set, we share the inside scoop on tech trends, explain how to leverage current technology in your career, and explore how your talents can be the key to your tech success. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Jones. I'm an educator, technologist, entrepreneur, mom, of two boys, lover of all things coffee and wine, an avid list maker, and a lifelong learner. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and I am so excited for you to hear a new show this week. Over the weekend, I had the great opportunity to speak with the owner of and founder of Lux Blocks. He's been on my show before, Mike, and Mike is an incredible entrepreneur, educator, and thought partner in terms of what it comes to how we feel and how we think we can move the pendulum in education. I have long said that education should be a powerful blend of blended learning and in-person. And Mike has the same feelings in terms of how do we begin to change the conversation around education. And in particular, in this conversation, we talk about opening the doors for girls to find their path in computer science and technology. And how do we even the playing field so that not only educators feel empowered, but so do students. I hope you will enjoy this talk with Mike. We dive into philosophy, content. We talk a little bit about his incredible invention of Lux Blocks and my work with the nonprofit, with my own nonprofit, Dottie Rose Foundation, and the work that I do every day in the classroom and helping teachers and school systems find their own voice in computer science and technology. Where do they fit into this world that is moving so quickly and innovation is happening at the blink of an eye. So join me today as Mike and I dig into changing the conversation around girls and technology. This was live on his show on Facebook every Saturday, and then you can also find it on YouTube as well. Follow him at LuxBlocks and follow me at Dottie Rose Foundation or at the dot underscore consulting. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this great conversation with Mike. This is Mike Achara with Thinking with Mike, episode 10, and I have the great pleasure of introducing you all to Dr. Sharon Jones. She is the CEO of The Dot. She's a consultant for K-12 schools in how to integrate computer science into their curriculum, and she's also the founder and CEO of the Dottie Rose Foundation, which does, like they're doing right now, many, many camps in the summertime uh, for basically girls in STEM and tech and and to some degree coding and computer science too, but she likes to make it an integrative approach. So uh, 
Sharon, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is awesome. <laughs> I am so happy you're here. And you, you and I have a past. You, I've been on your show too. But what, 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 what did I miss? What, what can you tell people about what you do and um, what drives you to do it? Well, goodness, that's a that's a big question. But thank you so much again, Mike, for having me today. It's really Absolutely. a pleasure. So, the the purpose or the kind of the background story of what I what I do is that I've been in education for almost twenty years, and my career has been all around career and technical education, which is and I've had a focus on business and computer science, which I know is is a mouth a mouthful. But when you're in within the middle or high school area, you tend to specialize in a particular area or subject. And my subject was around career and technical ed. I had a real passion for wanting to um, show the integration of all subjects into into what we do in career and tech. So I've spent most of my career teaching computer science, and I really sort of fell into that haphazardly. I uh, didn't even know how much I was going to enjoy it until I was working on my master's degree and learned uh, how to do my first program in visualbasic.net and then proceeded to move into HTML. But what I began to notice over my years of teaching was there were not as many females that were coming into my classes. And that really, even from the time I started teaching to when I left the classroom to go into a more of an admin role, there was the number of females just kept decreasing. I'm like, what is happening? Where, where are all the girls? And part of that was happening because I was teaching high school. And so by the time they'd get to me in ninth grade, they'd already made decisions about what they thought or or had an idea or a perception of technology, the sciences, the math, um, computer science. Because at the time, we weren't really like people weren't weren't as vocal about the discipline of computer science. It was uh, around the acronym of STEM, or we would be in the world of uh, of tech, kind of dumping us into this world of tech, and. You know, it just, I, I began to question a little bit about what was happening. And so as I began to do more research, I really began to realize that the kids were really, really excited about all things around science, technology, math, and, and elementary. But as they hit the middle school area, we began to see the differentiation start to hap- happen, the separation, and girls were not having the same encouragement. There was not... Um, and understanding that there tend to be the cultural difference that boys do this and girls do this. So by the time they got to me in high school, they were done. And I'd have to spend all this time bringing them, bringing them back to, to loving tech. And so that's really where my passion came from was to create a space where young, young girls could come and learn and have a good time and see that tech and computer science weren't all boy things and that there was a lot of relationship between things that they love and how we can use technology. Yeah. Answer. It's a good answer. And I, I taught uh, middle school and, and high, uh, not much high school as much, but middle school and below. And um, I noticed that when girls get into sixth and seventh grade, um, something, something happens. I mean, mm-hmm. something really happens. Yeah. And um, uh, what I do notice about, and I want everyone knows, they know girls knows what happens then. Um, but what's and being cool and being uh, being part of a group is is really becomes yes. par- paramount, especially for girls. Uh, and yes. I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but it seems like that becomes and the meanness comes out in the girls um, maybe more than in their whole life. It's that seventh grade girl that becomes like that's the apex mean girl, right? So 
and and uh, that does affect things. But what I did notice was, I, I as an adult, I have friends who are brilliant coders, with female coders. I mean, at, at the top of their game, being recruited from one giant company to another. Uh, and um, and what these women have in common is, with the men I know who do the same thing, and when I and I coded in school too, is it's not as much male culture or female culture. It's kind of like nerd culture. Uh, there's a, a general, uh, and not to be pejorative at all, but um, kids who will focus on coding and uh, have a curiosity for, for games, logic, puzzles, tend to be kids who maybe were reared that way with their parents, but they, they have a kind of comfort level with the mind in solving problems. Right. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it, that, it was, it was gender neutral in that sense. You know, it just was. And sometimes the girls are actually much better than, than the boys at a younger oh. age because they tend to grow faster in some ways. They than boys. do. And, they ha- yeah. and females have a great sense of empathy. Not that ma- male do not. There's, there is a little bit of difference in terms of the physiological makeup of, of between a male and, and a female or mm-hmm. for those that identify with either one, you know, and girls, they're, the empathy part is really interesting. They also like to have a purpose, you know, and I like the way you said it's kind of that nerd culture because mm-hmm. it is a bit of nerd culture. It's also just an understanding that when you are learning to work with technology, the whole concept behind it is no different than learning to ride a bike or learning to to play a sport or mm-hmm. learning to to read or to write in a particular language. The computer has its own language and its whole uh, its whole sense, which is what is computer science, right? And there's different elements within computer science that make our technology go, right? And so what's really interesting is the way in which it is, it is a very interesting community because we all get so excited when we can make something that doesn't actually have a brain do something we want it to do. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. And I tend to nerd out about all those things, too. Yeah. So what, I mean, I was just reading the history of briefly, I was reading the history of uh, computer sciences, New York times article, which is fascinating. And I'll link it in the, in the Facebook page and I posted it too on my page, but uh, it was very interesting. I didn't realize that I've heard of Ada Lovelace, of course, that she's one of like the queen bee of the first, the first programmer in history, maybe 200 years ago. And um, with Babbitt and uh, she, um, kind of is like like our women's George Washington of computer science in a sense. And and yeah. and I didn't realize that it was a, the field of computer science early on in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s was dominated by women. Um, and that only fa- and and there was lots of reasons for that. I think people saw the ENIAC and these big machines as being the man's job to get that machine going, all the tubes and the engineering and hire the secretarial pool to figure out the computer programming. But that secretarial pool, which was females, were brilliant. And it was hard work. And, it, and these women were doing it sometimes in their sleep. They'd wake up with the pro, the, pro, the one famous one was uh, they, they wanted to demonstrate to the military. I think it was ENIAC that they wanted to show the trajectory of a missile. But the problem was the missile wouldn't, wouldn't land. It would just go right through the world. You know, they couldn't get the missile to like stop flying. And she figured out the problem in her head that night and, and, and solved it. And so they, they were the first debuggers. And they discovered some of the, the language we use to this day about programming it comes from women, these women programmers of debugging, problem solving. Um, some of the programs I learned when I was in school, to show you my age, back in the 80s, was COBOL and Fortran. Two languages, one science, one business, uh, written by women. The compiling language was written by a woman. So this is a field that's a very female field. 
that we don't know about uh, enough in the history of technology. And um, what I read was that it, it's, the precipitous decline happened in 1984 with the development of uh, the first personal computers going into homes. They're oftentimes, this is where our sexism came in, they, these computers are oftentimes bought for boys. The dad and the boy would have kind of a mentor relationship with each other and they go through the, the, the machine and these boys would come to college with a very sophisticated understanding of, of uh, how computers work and how coding works. And that changed the field a little bit for a while, where these boys were seen as like, well, maybe it's a boy thing, computer science, not a girl thing. And yeah. uh, But it seems like places like Carnegie Mellon and uh, Harvey Mudd have really flipped that upside down. Now we've seen 50 to 57% women in, in the departments now. So um, the trend seems to be coming the other way, which is really good to hear, because uh, I don't think this, I think this is really a gender neutral kind of field. It's not necessarily like engineering or nursing where you see a big a big uh you know divide it seems like this should be for all those beautiful nerds out there to geek out on this is a great discipline it's an amazing discipline because there's so many different elements that you can so computer science as a discipline is really large and it's much larger just the concept around coding. So coding is one piece of what we do in the development of a new piece of technology, a new piece of um, artificial intelligence or machine learning. But I, I break it down into four buckets. And the way that I do that is because there's all these buckets have to work together in order to create a new New, something new that's innovative that's going to continue to move the technological world forward. You know, one of the big pieces that I think also changed the way in which we are interacting with tech is the the implementation of the personal f- uh, phone. You know, when we had the iPod and then we went into a cellular device that had more options than what we than we have now. It's really, yep, yeah, yeah, the iPad, everything has changed the way in which we interact with tech. And so it's opened up the field to have more of a robust um, and comprehensive framework. So my four buckets that I always talk about with with kids and with with teachers and, and students too is you have a programming or a coding bucket, you have an infrastructure bucket, which is your all of your hardware and all the things that need to be put together. You have your data bucket, because in order for any of this to run, we need to understand the why and the data is where we get that. And then you have a digital bucket. And that is all of that front end design, that UI, the user interface, the user experience, how we interact with our technology. And we need everybody's skill sets to come to the table to create a a platform or a device that is inclusive of all. So we need all heads at the table. So you're going to have you. A lot of times my girls will be drawn to design and the creativity and the intermingling of things because, as you mentioned, it was a very female dominated uh, discipline for many years. But actually, and even though development wise, it may have turned to more of a, a to more male females still are the first adopters of much of the technology because they use it for a variety of different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So that perspective is important when you're developing a new app, when you're developing a new software, when you're thinking about algorithms and how and who and what is using the technology, that's all the data pieces. So there's lots of different buckets or areas that you can find your spot in. And that's one of the myths I'm trying to debunk in much of my work that I do with the schools, with the in my consulting business and with the nonprofit is that it's not just about coding. Coding is a wonderful skill set and you need to have the ability to understand what is a programming language. So you mentioned COBOL and Fortran. Right. Those concepts, Mike, have never 
change. You still have variables. You still have conditional statements. You still have loops. It doesn't really matter what the language is. As long as you understand the fundamentals, you can program anything. It's just like learning to speak in English. I can say then I am Sharon, period. That's a command statement, right? If I can write a good sentence in English, then I can also write a good sentence in a programming language. So I can, you know, write um, hello world with the semicolon, same concept. It doesn't matter. I mean, it just does how I write it may be a little bit different. Just like I may write, I am Sharon differently in Spanish than I would in English. So my point is, is that one thing that's really great about computer science is there's the fundamental principles have not changed. They just continue to be used and innovated in different ways. So once you know those, you could find any role and do some really cool things. Right. And the threshold to get into a discipline, like I have an arts background, and the threshold to get into arts is pretty um, easy in, in comparison to computer science uh, culturally because of the language you use. So we, we all accept that little kids draw and paint, and we, nobody's going to kick them and, 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 and scream at them for screwing it all up and doing it badly, right? We just won't because right. we know that they're, they're painting like a three-year-old or a six-year-old. But we know that at a certain level, certain time, there'll be more expectations about what something should look like, perspective, all that thing. It doesn't seem like we have that. No, but Harvey Mudd did change it. Harvey Mudd changed their description to their uh, computer program, the computer science program to, um, they they included words like creativity, um, problem solving, and all of a sudden women sort of jump into that department because they said, then that's actually a more accurate way of describing computer science. It's more about creative problem solving. And women perked up like, well, I'm a creative problem solver. I, I consider myself creative. So it seems like uh, it's the art of language, right? Like, uh, and uh, I think that culturally computer science is um, probably the most significant new discipline in the last 75 years because we're literally, we're becoming like androids or cyborgs. We're, we're communicating with machines. We're using language to communicate to machines and machine. And so it's kind of like our, like our, uh, our doc, right? With the computer world, our, our mental doc. It's a very it's a fascinating subject. So what can we do now? The, what are you doing to help girls make do the convincing uh, pitch to get them to go to your camps and to help these schools get kids interested? What's your big pitch? So I usually ask them, first of all, what is something that you really love? What is something that you really love to do? So I do my original, when I have a conversation with any young person or any, and honestly, to any teacher for that matter, Mike, what is it that you are really passionate about? What do you love to do? And we start there. And then we, when we start to figure out if you really do love to draw and you love to, or you love to build, whatever that is, we start there. And I'm like, oh, well, did you actually know that there's this really great concept around being able to take your drawings and leverage that into a digital component? You know, and then they're like, huh? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and then a lot, a lot of times with, um, uh, with my kids, I'll also will go to things like music or fashion. And I'll say, do you realize that the music industry and the fashion industry are two of the most technologically advanced industries? And they have been using computer science for years to drive their to drive their industry. I mean, music has completely changed in terms of how you record and create music by the development of computer software programs. I mean, you can even code live as a DJ right now and create your own music. You know, fashion 
has led the way for years by jumping on the bandwagon early and understanding the platforms of social media to create a market in order to sell more goods. They totally leveraged e-commerce. And so a lot of times I'm like, that's how I usually try to get them hooked into the conversation is let's talk about something that you really, really love. Start there and then we'll add in the technical component. And then I'll back it up and say, well, actually, you're using variables and conditional statements every single day of your life. You know, a conditional statement is if I do this, then. Right. right? So if I get up and or if I get on Facebook, then, you know, and I more importantly, like now actually can you know, do my voice. But if I get on Facebook and I click on an ad that has a skirt in it then it's likely I'm going to get more ad, you know, more ads around that. So we just start having this conversation because the other thing that, as I mentioned to you before, is computer science is based on core principles. You, the variables, the looping, the functions, these are all things that we do in our everyday lives that have just been applied so that a computer can do it. And so if I can get them to see that connection between the two, then I normally can get them over that hump of having that perception that it's too hard. Um, there's been a quite a bit of research, and I, and I did this when I was when I was studying for my doctorate um, by uh, Fred Davis around uh, perception. There's a perceived ease of use and a perception of perceived usefulness. So anything that we get ready to do, we immediately process in our heads. Do we perceive this as something useful? And do we perceive it as something easy to use? Mm. And if both of those things come together, then we're likely to engage in using whatever it might be. So I try to get them to understand that actually everything that we use in uh, whatever we're developing is for the purpose to make, to solve a problem or to make something easier to use. But easier, but you so like it, you got to convince them it's easier, it's it's useful for them, mm-hmm. and it's easy enough for them. Like that's that's the you're saying that's the big hook, right? That's the big hook. And this yeah, is what that's I'm to, what I try to explain to everybody is that not every software is going to be built for everybody, right? Even though Instagram, Facebook, um, gosh, how many apps do we know are out there in the world? Mm-hmm. Tons of them, right? But apps are not built for everybody. You have a population or people that are going to use it, right? So it may not be useful to every person, but it's going to be useful to somebody, right? And then if you can make it easy for them to use, boom, you've got, you've got them hooked. Right, right. It's yeah, just like... That's interesting. Yeah, there's an app we use in our company <clears throat> called Canva. I don't know if you're well, do you know Canva? Yeah. And, and the woman, the woman, it could be a man, but the woman who happens to be in our company, who's very good uh, admin uh, ops person, she loves it because it's, uh, it's useful for her because she can make social media content, right? And it had a low enough bar because she doesn't have Adobe skills to create visual content. But now that she's been working with it for about a year or so, she's having our, um, our graphics designer make images so she can customize the Canva, right? And yeah. and so she's pulling now more creativity. So she's made that app her kind of go-to, but I can see her growing within that app, um, which I find very fascinating. And well, so you I, know, Canva was developed by a woman. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
because <laughs> of marrying those things together, putting uh-huh. that ability to have your own to a low bar. But you also mentioned two things that I think are really interesting. Mm-hmm. One is because that Canva served a purpose, right? There was a reason why Canva came out, and mostly that had to was the drive of social media and, and right. other products right because we've moved so much more of our work is digital you you can make good quality decent quality quickly social media content very low threshold of skills you got it low threshold of skills quickly it was not perceived as hard to use she had templates already out there but then what you said is your uh employee yeah used it now for a year and her skill, she has more confidence in her skills. Mm-hmm. And now she might be ready to take a jump into something else. Mm-hmm. And that is how we continue to build the technical skill. And that's the other thing I tell them. You don't have to take the bite the whole sandwich at one time. Just like when you have to take many steps, little steps will build on, on each other in order to build your skill set. I didn't walk in knowing all of these things about computer science. I've taught myself everything I know one little bit at a time. I mm-hmm. learned how to, I learned what binary was and I turned a light bulb literally on and off on visualbasic.net. I thought I was something. I learned how to make a web page on five floppy disks and upload it to an FTP site. So you can imagine when it came out that you could do it in notepad and upload it automatically. It was like, whoa, like when Netscape came out with this whole, it was just like magical, right? Yeah, yeah. But one little step at a time, you don't try to take it all off, you know, um, which I th- that is important for people to understand because I, just like you said before, we can accept it when a young child is drawing and messes up. We tend to be less forgiving as we get older. But as we get older, we need to be more forgiving. We need to give ourselves time to learn and develop a skill and realize that we're not going to get it on the first try. I noticed, especially with my students, and this is round the bat still, if I'm teaching them something new or I'm even teaching a teacher something new, I need to repeat it at least seven times before the idea really begins to sink in. Yeah, you would think that teaching teachers is easy. That's not true. Oh, it's not. You know, I, I, I've, I've done conferences at casinos. Um, they happen to be at casinos a lot because they have big rooms, beautiful rooms. And uh, I, I equated teaching teachers like teaching cats. I mean, the, the attention span was zilch. I mean, yeah. you can blame them. They're, they're at a casino. It's like, and they're just, they're all with each other and they're not with their kids. It's party time. So I found it really hard to get, it was a good exercise for me to get their attention. But yeah, so seven times. If you talk, tell somebody something or show them seven times before it sinks in. That, I believe that totally. Yeah, yeah, well, it took me a little while to figure it out because the thing is, is that when it, this is the other piece, we do this when every other subject really except for computer science. Like, I mean, when you're learning to read, you learn passages over and over again. When you're yeah. learning math, you repeat fact skills over and over but we tend not to do that when we're learning a programming language. It's like, oh, we're supposed to get it the first time we do it. No, you need to see it in like four or five different examples because yeah. like you are learning in English, they're there and there. <laughs> Although a loop may look one way in one particular um, uh, software or, or application, it may look very different somewhere else. And so it's that consistent practice and learning to be able to, to um, flex a bit and figure out how you're going to use that content. Just like we automatically can figure out how to use there, there, and there now, it takes that same amount of time to, well, 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, but still takes that same amount of time when you're learning to, to code or actually let's not even take coding out of that element. Even when you're learning Canva, although it's a low threshold, you still got to do it two or three times before you're like, oh, that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do. No, there's a deep truth. This. There was an old Latin saying, um, uh, and I don't know how it goes in Latin, but it meant um, repetition is the mother of learning. And um, um, our kids were Suzuki educated in music. And the Suzuki method is all about um, playing a piece. You'll play Twinkle. It'll be your first piece will be Twinkle, your first performed piece. But you'll play Twinkle uh, for the rest of your life. You know, it's, it's not about doing it once okay, but it's about how much musicality you can bring to any piece, no matter how simple it is, your whole life. And you could always put more musicality into it, right? So it, it was about a, not a, a dumb repetition, but when, you, when you're a musician, you play scales and arpeggios. Even masters still play their scales and arpeggios because it's just um, – it's, it's concretized things and concretizing things in the, in the mind is about going back to it again and again and, and keeping those new, making new connections and, for, and, and fortifying old connections, right? So um, I think there's something true. And you're, you're saying that they kind of give short shrift to that with computer science in schools? Oh, yeah. To like, yeah. Most of the curriculum you see will come out. We'll have it one or two examples. And, and this yeah. happens in science and other places, too, mm -hmm. where Absolutely. Like one or two examples and then you're supposed to know that concept and move on. And the other thing is it sometimes it can be taught in silos like this is when you're learning variables. This is when you're learning conditional statements. But the key piece of the way that all of this works is that integration of them all. And the other thing is to understand the core principle of the under of problem solving and debugging. So we do this naturally in other subjects, but somehow when we go to computer science, it's like, oh, we're just supposed to be able to like do it lickety split, you know, and that just isn't the case. Like you have to still put forth some effort because you're learning, you're learning it, you're learning how to apply a concept in a slightly different manner because we have to keep remembering whatever we're doing in computer science, we are implementing something into an, an object that does not have a brain. Now, we, we can teach machines and machine learning, and we can teach it to, to understand things, but it's still just a, a, a machine. It's not a human, right? So it, sometimes you'll do something and it doesn't work. It's okay. Understanding that and understanding that frustration and be able to walk away for a few minutes is okay. Now, this is something that girls tend to do better than boys. Uh, and I, I will only say this uh, out of a love and heart for all my young men out there. And I have two boys of my own, but my mm. kids, tend to, the boys sometimes will give up and walk away. Right. My girls will really work on the problem solving and, and processing. And even if they have to step away, which I encourage people on a regular basis, learn it, understand it, practice it, walk away, let it meld in your brain and then step mm. back into it. And give yourself that time. But the girls really do take, um, I'm always so impressed at a lot of times the first time it doesn't work. And then they'll, they're like, oh, ugh. but then they'll ask two other people before, you know, they totally like walk away from it. And then, I mean, not that it doesn't always happen. They're like, well, but we just did a web develop, uh, an app development piece, a couple of, um, months ago and it was so cool we built it from the back end i did a mm -hmm. whole like, data piece from the back end. Mm -hmm. it was really cool like i thought they were going to give up like that when they couldn't see that working but nope 
they went back in. They're like, oh, oh, you know what I did? I typed this word wrong. Or, Oops, I forgot to put the semicolon. It was just, it was really neat to watch yeah. them do. Is that related, you think, to um, the, the old joke about how men won't ask for directions, but women are more willing to ask for directions? It, it, it seems like men just, it's a pride thing or something. And uh, um, I've seen it too, where boys could, might be more willing to give up on something and, say, and just justify, this isn't for me, this isn't my bag, where girls might give it a shot. And that's not a, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize that across the board. No, I know, I know. Right. Every kid, and I, and I don't want people to think that either. It's just an observation that I've watched over the years of right. teaching and watching, watching the, the, the way in which they interact with one another, the way girls interact with each other, the way they do when you have all together. Um, it's just very intriguing. And, um, right. What I want, the, what the girls, the main piece is, what I tell my girls all the time is that part of where we have females sometimes, and I, I don't want to make a generalization, but there's often times where a young woman will not step into her best self because of fear of being judged or a a cultural norm that they're not supposed to be aggressive or they're not supposed to be um, uh, you know, uh, assertive and how we begin to change that is by giving them the confidence of earning these skills and understanding they are, their input is very valuable. They may not be the top coder, but they may be the top designer. They may want to build and tinker and maybe not program. And that's okay. They yeah. may also want to apply and, you know, my goodness, we need content writers and developers on a regular basis for all the things we do. It's helping them find their voice and their fit. Where do they want to find their role? Because technology is going to be a part of whatever career choice they choose. Yeah. Maybe. And building a website, I can't imagine a more integrative project. I was going to mention that the problem with school tends to be it's theoretical and kids don't really hate theoretical. It, and everyone does. But theoretical is boring. Because it means that like you're doing something that has no purpose. Remember you said purpose is important. Like, what does it mean to me? Theory has no purpose. Theory is just theory, right? Uh, but if you say we're building something that we're going to show other people or it's going to do something really cool, like it's going to help you sell your clothes, right? It's, you're making your own uh, Nordstrom's website, you know, something a girl might value or a boy might value uh, or a sporting goods site, you know, and everyone can get on board because they all like to go to their own websites, right? So if you make it a real thing, like a website, then you, like you said, you need copywriters because copywriting is actually really hard to do. Oh you know, a lot of coders can't do it they, to save no. their life. They can't write copy. So I, it's a be- what a beautiful integrative project to write a website, right? Really, that's what I'm saying. Those four buckets have to come together to really yeah. make a really dynamic piece of technical software or, um, or, or infrastructure hardware piece. And you're spot on. I will be very frank with you. I am not a spectacular content writer. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't actually do super well in social media and digital. I sit in the data and programming bucket. So mm-hmm. I would love to go to your website and analyze how many people have come to it. Who's clicked where, what they're doing, why do they click on the on the orange button instead of the red button? You know, whatever that case may be, that's right. of interest to me. I love working with other people that can create these beautiful front end designs. And then I love the fact to be able to come in and help to analyze and and understand the algorithm and the data part of it to make 
it a really great website. And, and, that's, that, like, and that's like marketing dovetailing with um, and, and uh, psychology dovetailing with yeah. technology. Because like, why, why do people pick the red button over the orange button? Right. And well, you, are you going to do, do a group study and figure out what buttons they prefer to press? I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And most people choose orange because they think red means abort or quit. Oh, there was actually an answer for that. Interesting. Yeah. Orange is um, a, a better button. Yeah. Yeah. I think they've proven that um, when schooling is more about pra- uh, practice than um, theory, when there's more uh, projects, uh, project based learning. Um, it, it seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, no schools, uh, no cathedrals were built in schools, right? Um, no, no professor ever invented an airplane. The airplane was invented by bicycle tinkerers, right? So it's like the most interesting things come about not in academia and not doing it academically, but just by doing it, being a doer, right? So if you encourage kids to be doers, like let's 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 build a theater and have a play, or that's kind of ambitious, but let's let's build a a, a bike. Like how hard is it to make a bike or how hard is it to make a website? Because you're going to get lots of allied skills, right, to come into these projects. So I'm a big project guy. Like let's, I, I'm a big bridge builder. Let's build a bridge with, with just the trees in the forest and some twine. How hard is that, right? And, and it's amazing just that when you give kids a problem like that, like traversing a little uh, stream, mm-hmm. it's difficult, but you could almost let them go and just watch how they think, right? It's so – I, I've experienced that magic, and I think that, that totally with, 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 computing, with computing and technology, a website, making a website seems like a natural. Well, you know, and part of like where I just love so much the work that you've done, Mike, with the, with the building of the Lux Blocks is that building of the muscle to problem solve. Because here's the thing that's the most frustrating about computer science and why we often get people to hit the wall. Like I mentioned about the perceived usefulness mm-hmm. and the perceived right? We, we, those things come together. But the other piece is, is that people get frustrated, right? They get frustrated because they wrote, they've spent all this time on code or they've done all these things. And like, then it doesn't work the way you think it's going to do, or it's not as dynamic or, and then it's like things go up in the air and you're done. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but part of how we can begin to mitigate that is building of the problem solving ability to think through, like to just give you a piece of twine and a piece of tape and say, make something. Because truthfully, that's exactly what you're doing when you're trying to create a technological device. You've got maybe this case or a chip and, you know, um, some some basic pop-up of like a notepad, right? Notepad was really where we started um, after floppy disk is where you would write your uh, web page or, or whatever it looks like. It's you're kind of given this blank page and you've got to figure out how are you going to build build this thing that you want it to do something. So the whole like notion of what we're doing right now was a problem. Someone like, you know, it'd be nice if I could talk to somebody on the computer. What do I need to do that? You know, and you start pulling from things that, you know, or you don't know and you're playing around with it. But um, that's one of the things I love most about the development of your product and the combination of remembering that even though you're going to be developing on a piece of technology, it doesn't take away from the hands-on piece of where you're sketching and drawing, building it, whatever that looks like. I think all of those things have to come together to make a really, really good technological innovation. Yeah. Uh, You said a mouthful there. I think it's true. I I think about this all the time. Like, uh, 
I think what you said was really profound about how there's got to be a, a, a level, an access level that the kid will thresh, the threshold they can get into, right? And what was the other part of it? There's the threshold and there's the, the, the purpose. Mm-hmm. I have a purpose. It's got to have a purpose. So you could plug that into just the school as a principal, right? Or as a classroom teacher. Like what's the, what's the purpose of them coming here? Is it obvious to them? why they're coming to my classroom or why they're entering my building at school. Is it obvious to the kid? If it's not obvious. Has the principal or the teacher somewhat kind of failed? Right? Because isn't that, it sounds like a universal principle. It definitely is a principle in business and in product design. Right? But it seems like it, should, it could be a principle in school too. Like the kids have an obvious purpose for going to school. Right. And they know that even though they might fail, they know that they, because through practice, they know that those little steps of failure leads to success. That failure is, is baked into the whole thing. Like Elon Musk always says, you know, if you're not willing to fail, uh, uh, you're not going to really innovate. That they, they, they innovate through, through successive failures. Right. That's, that's part of learning is, is making mistakes and cataloging your mistakes. And it's a path to, it's like tacking in a sales ship, right? You're going back and forth, but you're actually going in, in a direction you want to go to. So, um, yeah, this is, a, this is a very deep problem that I'm always thinking about is like uh, communicating with the person, getting, getting them to want to do something and uh, convincing kids that they can do better. Than, they can do better. Yeah, it's a it's a systemic problem in education that we don't give them enough opportunity to be able to fail. We've almost stripped right. that away by standardization of so many things. And I do know that we have to have a framework in order to make sure we're providing education at, at at the highest level uh, you know, for, for all in some capacity. But part of that is on the flip side of it, that standardization has really created students who don't understand why they're going to school because they have, they feel like they've got to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this. And that's the other reason why I, I say often, like when they come to something like computer science, it's really not a box you can check. You know, there are systematic pieces of understanding a programming language, but there's so many more elements that go into developing something in a computer science discipline or thought process that it's hard to standardize it with a multiple choice test, or it's hard to standardize it, say like in 45 minutes, you got to come in and we've got to get through da, 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 because at the end of the school year, I've got to test you on all these different things. I always struggled with that because where I really found the kids learn the best was by practicing and developing and trying and just mastering how to implement a variable and a loop was like super amazing because they figured out, Oh, I can do this and this. And, and, but it takes time for that to that skill to continue to develop and get better and better and better. And that's a part of education that I struggle. And, and often why you see technology and computer science pulled out of classrooms, because it's not easy to standardize and you can't check the box and say, oh, it's A, B, C, or D, because often it's not. <laughs> I right. mean, there's structure, but like it, that may not, the A, B, C, or D may not be how you end up actually solving a problem. Yeah. And the whole, the whole um, culture of the school could become failure aversion, Right. That the, 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 the road to A is the averting of B, averting of C, averting of D, and, and failure is um, a pejorative. It's not part of the process. And um, that's not real world because if everyone was failure averse, we wouldn't have innovation. That's not how, that's not how um, things are discovered. So um, it's just trial and error, right? 
And so if you if you make a school about that standardized test, and, and, and I've noticed that too, box checking is a huge thing. And these poor teachers, they basically have to justify every minute of their day mm-hmm. with, a, a, with, a, um, with a lesson plan and how every activity they do goes towards a testable skill. And there's a kind of insanity to that because, um, well, imagine if a parent had to do that. Like every interaction I have with my child today is, is a testable skill about what a good parent I am, what a good child this is. And it doesn't make any sense, right? There's a, a qualitative, uh, there's something lost. Something really dear is lost in the whole process. And I think there's a, a dishonesty happens that's built into the cake after a while where we know that we're just doing this for uh, – for, other, for some accountants somewhere to say how good our school did on that Scantron. I don't use Scantron anymore probably, but on Scantron test, that's going to judge how good a teacher I was, how good the student was, and how good the principal did. And um, do you think we're moving away from that? Is this, and you're saying this is a hurdle for you, convincing these schools to have these computers because they can't plug that in? Yeah, it's often, um, yes, because so much of what we do is not super quantitative. There's more of a qualitative element to development. And because, well, you know, in my opinion, you're just gonna have to have both, right? Mm-hmm. I have I've long said this for many, many years, and it, it's difficult to um, standardize because what you need is a little bit of both. You're gonna have to have a little bit of the quantitative and you've got to have a little bit of the qualitative to make it actually come together, right? It's not one or the other. So a piece that's hard for, for teachers and for, edu- uh, for school systems to get over is that what we are teaching is not per se tangible. Problem solving, innovation, working through concepts, understanding the computational thinking methods and the design thinking methods, which ultimately make them stronger in terms of standardized testing because they can figure things out. It's not a testable subject. Like getting out that, good example, like just getting out a, uh, a big bucket of Lux blocks, all right? And I say, okay, guys, let's make DNA. Mm-hmm. And I'm quiet, right? That's a quality, that's not technically testable, right? I don't have it on a piece of paper that I can scan in that says they did it, you know, that kind of thing. And so that makes it hard for people want this check of a yes or a no, this was done or this was not done, right? And it's not that way. It's gray. Education and learning are never going to be just binary. There is always going to be a middle ground. Right. But in the real world, we don't want to know. We're not. We, no one's interested to know really what uh, Einstein's seventh grade um, algebra grades were. It's not that unless you're a historian or some weird thing. But um, we don't. We don't know. Want to know how the Wright brothers tested on their aptitude test uh, or how they did in school because real people in the real world are interested in accomplishment and um, not. And, and sometimes those accomplishments happen in spite of the fact that you're an idiot. You just, you know, uh, believe me, I know from experience, I do things I can't believe. You knew what an idiot I was. You can't believe I did that. So, uh, so in terms of kids in school, you could measure accomplishment. You could say this team developed a website over the semester, right? And then we could say, well, yeah, but that one kid didn't do anything. But in, within that team, we have an individual performance plan for all these kids. And Johnny really did all, all those beautiful artwork you see in there. He did that right? His coding skills, well, they weren't that valued in this project, right? His coding skills are around here, 
right? But he's excited about learning. He's, he is psyched about learning Adobe, right? Which is something he wasn't excited about before. See what I'm trying to get at too is like, this is all real stuff, right? right? And this can make... But in our standardized world, we need to figure out a way to give him a multiple choice test to prove that he can do whatever standards were a part of that class, which really what we understand to be is that he's a value, Johnny's a valuable product of that course. He wasn't strong in the programming piece, but if we didn't have his artwork, you wouldn't have a website. Well, I don't think we, I, I disagree. I don't think we have to have a standardized proof of what he did. If you had the parent on board with Johnny's progress, right? And it was okay with the parents to say, it's good enough for us that we, we know what he did this semester, you know, uh, what, what you know, we could see his accomplishments, we, we could hear him defend his ideas, we could hear that, um, how good he did these things uh, based on what he did, right? Um, I, I just think it's a contrast between the parent, the, the student, maybe the teacher, but th- th- when the state gets involved and that's- all this, that's the problem. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's not that I agree with you. I agree with you. But because of the way in which our education system is set up, right. Johnny will still have a standardized test at the end of whatever project based learn, you know, it even right. though and so that part is what becomes really hard for the teacher is that even though you know, and they they sort of seesaw on this line of un- wanting to do more project based learning and then petrified that they don't teach them some randomized facts of knowing that they won't do well on the end of course test, you know? Um, And that's a big hump I'm trying to get over for people to see that that project-based learning will allow that child to do so much better on the standardized test than just feeding facts. Right. 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 And And, and kind of the balance that we're trying to do now. Yeah. And the history of uh, uh, a lot of innovators, especially in the tech, tech world, is that they, um, like Bill Gates, for instance, he ended up doing a big project where he helped uh, a school system in California, I think it was, with their grading, right? He wrote software. And he, ne- he never went back to school after that. I don't think he didn't definitely didn't graduate college. I don't know if he went to college. So and, and this, this, this has been repeated over and over again. These um, innovators didn't go to college, right? And we're like, well, you know, but all kids should go to college. Really? Maybe you're going to, maybe this teacher was so good in the school they were at that a lot of their kids in eighth grade were entrepreneurs, you know, and didn't even go to, who knows, or maybe not eighth grade, but my dad didn't go to high school, but back in the depression era, you just didn't go to high school. You went, you went out and usually got a skill and became a carpenter or something. But my point is, is that um, we're setting these kids up universally with these white collar expectations that they're all, we're grooming them all for college, which is so stupid because we know what the bell curve looks like and we know what the interest curve looks like. And these kids, a lot of these kids don't want to be SOAN majors or engineering majors. They want to work with their hands and they want to be creative and, and, and college might not be the best route for them. So it seems like you're fighting the good fight and, uh, if, teach, if, if parents or teachers or principals want to bring computer science in their school, do you think their best road is to go to the parents and, and try to sell them on it and, and use those principles of like, this is why um, it's purposeful for your kid and for you as a parent, and this is, this is how easy it is that we can do this? Like, how would you do it? So, yeah, you definitely have to have a integrated conversation with parents, uh, the educators at the school, the support staff, and 
honestly, the key secret sauce and mm-hmm. is bringing in the community and showing the connection between all of it. But the big piece to this is quick wins. You have to do small things and show the importance and the value with quick wins that happen so that parents can see the success. What does a quick win look like? Well, it depends. It depends on where they are in terms of what exposure or what experience right. they've had with project-based learning, with community implementation, with the concepts around just understanding computational thinking of how you look at a problem and you understand the, you decompose the problem, you find the patterns, you begin to take out the abstraction, and then you create an algorithm that actually is going to solve a problem, right? It's how much of those things are going on in your school right now. Are you very um, testing heavy? Like, do you take great pride in SAT scores and standardized testing? Or are you a magnet program that has this magnet theme around art or, um, international baccalaureate, like there's, it kind of depends on the school and the culture, but a quick win is going to be something in which we implement a project that immediately you can see the kids perk up. And that can be just from a simple activity that you do at a PTA meeting, or it could be something you do on the first day of school or last. There's just lots of different ways you could think about it. Right. Strategically, what you want to do is look within your school and your community. Where do your parents work? What are the industries around in your community? What is it that you have noticed over time that your teachers get really excited about? We all love food, right? Food is a great way to start in terms of bringing people together and start having conversations. Food is also extremely academic, math, science, tech. Social studies. I mean, you think mm-hmm. about culturally where we are in the United States, all the different types of foods that come together. I mean, you could just start there and say, let's talk about the chemical reaction between uh, a raw sweet potato and a cooked sweet potato. I mean, whatever it is, you know what I mean? So I know I'm not giving you a direct answer because no, you again, are. Yeah. it's a little bit more complex, but I always say that This is the part where I think we've also missed, and I'll tell you where my career took a change, is when I took academics, parents, and my community, and I pulled those three together, and I created projects that had meaning and had purpose. And my entire career changed. My kids took off. I've now got a legacy of 25 girls, and there's boys too, but uh, that are working in the tech field that have said, because you gave me a reason or a purpose, it changed the way my perspective was. But more importantly, our parents got involved because I had amazing parents in my rooms, like carpenters, um, plumbers. I had, you know, um, marketers. I had salespeople. I had um, car salesmen. Um, I had one fellow that uh, his... He was, he worked as a, um, a mechanic at NASCAR and his, his son was kind of embarrassed about it. I'm like, that's incredible. That's an incredible talent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that, where I brought parents and then I'm in Charlotte, this, that's where I live is in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have a very big banking industry, tech right. and other, there's other things around, but, you know, pulling those stakeholders in to say, these are the young people that you're going to want to hire. Right. And let's let's bring some let's talk to them about what you're doing in your everyday life. And then let's talk to them about what skill sets they need to be bringing to the table, regardless if they go to college. Right. Does- 
you're articulating a principle called subsidiarity to the Catholic teaching principle, a social teaching principle. Have you ever heard of subsidiarity? You've talked about it before to me. Yeah, I guess I have. So uh, I love this concept because subsidiarity means that the, the, the things in life in society are, are best brought down to their most lowest democratic um, stock stakeholder. Okay. Right. Like raising an army might be a job for a federal government or the state government, right? It's probably not the job for the people of Charlotte to worry about raising an army, right? But maybe their, their kids' schooling is their business, not the governor's business, not the president's business, but their business, right? That's subsidiarity. Something should be brought down to the, or all things should be brought down to the most logical lowest level. That's, that's a democratic principle. And I think that's what you're saying here with education is that the teacher, it behooves the teacher to talk to those parents, and just ask them to be honest with yourself. You were a fifth grader. Think about what I'm doing with your kids and be honest with yourself. Is it, compare it to what you do when you were in fifth grade, okay? Because that's all we have is ourselves anyways in our own experiences. And, and, and um, I think we're doing some really magically wonderful things here with your kids. But I want, I want to convince you of it. I don't want you to be doubtful. Come into my classroom, see what we're doing. Come to the, come to the festival where the kids orally explain what they did. See, mm-hmm. Measure how excited they are. Were you this excited when you were a fifth grader? These kids want to come to school. Why do they want to come to school? Because they're, because they're being lazy. Look what they're doing. They're so busy. They're, they're busy. These are, this is the busiest fifth grade in my county, right? So it does seem like it's, it's part of the teacher's job and the principal's job to sell what they believe in. Otherwise, they become cogs in the machine and then they shouldn't complain then. Well, you know, and this is, this is the thing that I think is so interesting. The other piece is that we can get so siloed and this happens not just in education, this happens in business too, where we mm-hmm. just get focused on our particular little bubble. Right. 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 And, 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 and we all are, I mean, even I can do this. There's times where I fall into the, to the silo. Right. But where I feel the most innovation and the biggest purpose, and I see the biggest change is when I bring a group of people together and we think about, when you have lots of different brains and experiences and oper- um, and uh, content, context that come together to have a conversation. I mean, it's amazing what sometimes even those of us in the de- academic world, when we're in there for so long, we, f- we can forget what it's like to be in the corporate workforce or in a workforce outside of academia. When you're in the workforce, you for sure can forget what it feels like to be in the world of academia and understanding that. So, yes, I cannot emphasize enough of, ha- of bringing people into your classroom, having the classroom go to the, the, the business world, vice versa. Whatever that looks like for anybody, is going, it changes the way we think and the way in which we can innovate and integrate because we, we have a bigger perspective and a bigger understanding of what's happening outside of just our, our bubble. So you're saying for the, te- the classroom teacher, don't, make, don't silo your classroom. Your classroom should be connected to the world as much as possible to make sense, right? And that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, sometimes I'm always like, you know, think about listening to a podcast one day. Think about bringing in a local author to read a book, or even if you're reading one of the books that you have to read, you know, having someone who is a voiceover person come in and read a different character. You know, yeah. think about it in a way in which you become, because the other thing about it, teaching can be very exhausting because you're with kids all day long. And some teachers in middle and high, you know, this see, you know, 60 or 100 kids in a day, depending on the way your schedule is. And it's exhausting. 
So how do we begin to take some of that burden off of us and bring, because we are all responsible for children's education, even though you may not be in a classroom, it's still our responsibility to be good members of society and help bring our children, you know, raise our children out, you know, always takes a tribe, whether you have them or not. But opening that and facilitating the learning with lots of different um, opportunities. It also will make your your teaching life, oh my gosh, you get you get excited again about going to school. Because, oh man, like, it's like today, I mean, goodness, Mike, you've been incredible and called in and, and spoken to a group of sixth grade kids. They still are talking about your conversation. Oh, cool. You know? Yeah, like, that was hey, fun. Are they still gonna, they, a couple of them asked me the other day, so is Luxbox hiring? I'm like, I'm gonna keep you right here, yeah, buddy. Yeah, I remember that one kid was saying, I wanna work there, yeah. But stuff like that, that was so influential for them because they didn't mm. know that that existed. And here you are using 3D printing to create an entire business that's now quadrupled in size and been nationally and internationally recognized. And they're like, what? Over, you know, it's just mm. that little bit changes their mindset differently. And you talking about how you use science and math. And that's one of the things because because in school we get, well, this is math time and this is science time. They forget to see the connection. Yeah. And I always, and that's why I interview people like you, because um, I, as a kid, felt pretty much always like a failure when, it was, when I was in school. I just, I felt like I was a square peg in a round hole. Um, and, I, and I thought school was a prison. So there was only brief lights in that dark tunnel, certain teachers I loved, like Mrs. Libano in second grade, she built a terrarium while we were there. And so we got to be with her when she built that terrarium, helped her build it, put the layers of soil in. She put hermit crabs in there. My desk was right next to the terrarium. So I was, it's, I never forgot that. It blew my mind. Um, so I had experiences that were great in school, but um, I'm just, the problem with schooling has always been an obsession with mine. Uh, of uh, and our product started that way. Luxblock started with a, an obsession with Froebel, the inventor of kindergarten, and his obsession with dealing with all these orphans. And what can you? Do, what, what are children? What, what are they really? Are they little proto humans, like little stupid versions of us, or actually are they really dynamic, incredible creatures that might outsmart us very rapidly if we just give them room to like use their brain? So that's a big question, isn't it? Like you know, what potential is there in these children? And should we just give them the right tools and, and get out of their way? Or should we just throw at them, you know, standardized tests for 12 years so they're really thoroughly sick of school in 12 years? It, it, it seemed, and I know that's black and white, but it seems like sometimes that's the case. Yeah, that's the way I feel often. I mean, I, I, I do feel that COVID is going to shift some of the way in which we are going to, uh, you know, if there was any a positive, like I, I've, it's brought to light a lot of the things that are not right about education right. and about the things that we cannot necessarily quantify. Mm-hmm. What I hope and my, my true hope is because I'm watching my own two children grow is that they find delight in learning. They find mm. joy and being able to use their brain to do a variety of things. You know, I always tell my kids, my own two children, I I much felt like I wasn't quite smart enough in school too. My parents never made me feel that way, but just based on, you know, I wasn't your top student. I wasn't your Mm -hmm. bottom student. I was, I had to work really hard at anything I did. And to this day, I still have to work really hard at everything that I do. Um, but I find 
a lot of joy in continuing to grow and change. And my confidence is always growing because I'm take, because I take the time to learn a new skill. I'm always thinking about something that maybe I don't know how to do. And I'm not always successful, but at least I've tried. And that's what right. I always tell my kids too. Like, you know, um, I hope that they will always want to learn my, my mama D Dottie Rose, which is what my businesses are named of in mm-hmm. honor of um, Dottie did not go to college. She went to some a, a junior college for some time before they weren't able to financially uh, afford that anymore. But she was a constant learner. She was always taking a dance class, a flower class, a swimming um, variety, always doing something where she was constantly keeping her brain engaged in learning and doing something different. That is my hope for education that we can find that. And where I find my niche is showing people how you can take a passion and match it with a cool piece of technology so that you can do anything you want to do. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about Michael Moore when he went to Finland and interviewed the teachers. And one of the things that blew him away was that one of the teachers said, well, our, our, our job here is, to, um, is joy and happiness and delight. They use those words that we want these kids to be, have delight and joy and happiness in, in learning. And, and, and what a higher aspiration is there? And, and everything will kind of fall into place, you know, because we're motivated by a pleasure principle. And if we find delight in mental and creative activities, you've succeeded because they've learned that that's where the source of delight and joy is. It's amazing. Completely agree. Yeah. Well, listen, this was a delight. <laughs> and I saw the more lovely. passion you got, the more passion came out on you, the more that North, North Carolina accent came out, which I thought oh, was really yeah. wonderful. I heard it. I heard it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if people want to contact you and have you come and save their school, how do they contact you, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Jones? I would love to come and help um, have a com- conversation about what's going on and how we can uh, innovate and create uh, lots of delight and joy. Um, you can reach me. You can find us at the dot consulting dot co co, um, or you can email me Sharon S H A R O N at the dot consulting dot co, or on all the social media platforms at the dot consulting. And if you're interested to know more about what we do in terms of serving uh, middle school girls in computer science, which is the nonprofit arm of my work, you can find any of that at DottieRoseFoundation.org. Um, again, that's and then at Dottie Rose Foundation on all the social media platforms. Dottie with two C's and an I-E, Dottie. C-O-T-T-I-E. That's right, it. Right, right, right. Well, thank you again for joining me on The King with Mike. Uh, I've been looking forward to this, and um, I want to have you to come back in a year. And uh, we'll follow up with more of this discussion because um, it's a deep subject. And I think that we, we could have talked about uh, this computing, right? And, and how it affects our lives. So you are uh, a, a treasure and thank you again. And um, thank you for joining us, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Coding the Future. Please join your host, Dr. Sharon Jones, for another edition next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk then.
the world needs more women with tech skills. At the Dottie Rose Foundation, we encourage, support, and educate girls who have an interest in technology and want to learn how it can be used to enhance their learning and future careers. Our camps demonstrate that most future career paths will benefit from developing a wide range of increasingly important technology and software skills. We accomplish this through mastering computational thinking, boosting self-confidence, and creating new possibilities for each girl. Visit DottieRoseFoundation.org. 